All right. So that's been a common phrase in Cleveland for years and years, but no more so than this week. On... <laughs> where, where did you get that audio of Jimmy Haslam <laughs> and Dan Gilbert? They sound yeah. so much alike. It's incredible. Yeah, I mean, who, who would have thought that we could splice up that sound so we have all of the Cavs and Browns firings over the last five years just in one place, one tidy little 40-second segment. And they're still paying all of those guys, I believe. Or at least some segment of them. I feel like like Pat Shermer's probably not getting a paycheck still, but I bet pretty much the rest are. Yeah, is Romeo still collecting? Uh, Butch Davis, does he still get a paycheck? Chris a, Palmer. Chris Palmer. John Lucas. I, I, I think they're past. I think they're past Palmer. Lucas may be getting close. Yeah. Uh, Byron Scott is definitely still getting paid. That's for sure. And so the question on a lot of people's mind is, thank you for tuning in to the Selby's Guidecast along with TJ Zuppi. I'm Zach Meisel. Um, but it, it's – we had – Ty Lu lost his job, what, Sunday? Sunday. Hugh Jackson lost his job Monday. Monday. Terry Francona is safe. Although, I, judging from my, my Twitter, like, uh, there were people who wanted a clean sweep who said, hey, let's go three for three this week and just – Turn over a new leaf in Cleveland sports. But that is not happening. Terry Francona, barring something absolutely unforeseen, will be managing the Indians in 2019, and his contract runs through 2020 as well. So uh, where do you stand on Cleveland coaching gate? (laughs) It was expected, but yet somehow unexpected. I don't know. It it never – I never really fully know what is going to happen. And that's pretty much the theme of anything that happens in this town, because I expect things to happen on a certain schedule and they don't. Hugh Jackson, how he survived through the past two years is unbelievable. And then Ty Lu doesn't really fit with the cab, the direction they're now headed, which I'm not sure what it is. It's like half trying to win, half trying to tank. Now it looks like it's all tank. I don't know. But I guess the, the old adage that coaches are hired to be fired uh, plays itself out more than any other city, it seems, in this town. And the, t- this, the team, the franchise that many people have said for many years is the one that has run the smartest, and maybe not the best, and maybe doesn't always make the right decisions at all times. And hell, there are a lot of times we'd like them to spend a little bit more money than they do, certainly. The Indians are the team that just has this stability where the only reason why anybody ever leaves the coaching ranks or front office is because other teams want those guys. It's really such a, an interesting twist between these three franchises that you have guys still getting paid to coach and not coach the two teams. And then the Indians are the one that have people leave their front office and coaching ranks because they're highly coveted. It's so crazy to me, that dynamic. Well, yeah, I think so. All three sports are so different. And I think it's important. Like when I tweeted out earlier this week, I said, you know, since the Indians introduced Terry Francona six years ago this month, both the Cavs and the Browns have fired four coaches each. And so that, that's not saying that, oh, the Indians are better because they've only had one head guy over that period of time. And it, it's just every sport is different. And every, certainly we know. The three franchises are operated quite differently as well. But I think the NFL is its own animal because it's so 
like every team, if you're not the Patriots, maybe like the Packers and Steelers fall into this too. Uh, but like the majority of the league is like, you get like two years and if things aren't trending in the right direction, you're gone. And then you just hire the hot commodity <laughs> coordinator to, to take your place. And it's, I mean, especially in Cleveland, obviously we've seen that, but like baseball, baseball doesn't work like that. Cause I think aside from the Yankees, Red Sox, Dodgers, maybe Cubs, but even they rebuilt, like, like everything is so cyclical. So, you know, you hire someone who's going to lead you through your rebuild and then maybe you cut ties as you're getting good. But like, there's, there's certainly more longevity. You rarely see someone get fired after one year or two years. Like, like if, if this was the NFL, Mickey Calloway would certainly not keep his job with the Mets. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and I think that there's just something to the sports being so different and the responsibilities of the head coaches and the manager being so different because in football, I, I I was trying to think about this, trying to put it in my head, like a percentage of how much of each play a head coach impacts. And I think it's obviously everything is always decided by the players for as much as you, you point to the coach as being a problem that a lot of times it can be a problem, but still the players decide what ultimately happens. You can make a bad call. You can make a bad play call in football. You could make a, a bad offensive play call in basketball or, and a superstar player can make up for that and make you look smart. But I think more than any other sport, football probably has the greatest impact on each individual play. Would you agree? Yes. And, and it's, it's about, I mean, it's about the system you can implement too. Like in football, Belichick is the reason the Patriots, he's, he's a big reason why the Patriots are what they are and why they have been. I mean, it's, Matt Castle went 11 and five as the starting quarterback of that team the, the year that Tom Brady was hurt. Like, like he can, he has a system and he can plug guys in and that's not to take anything away from Tom Brady, who's maybe the best of all time, but like, you don't really see that in baseball In baseball. You need, you need players and, and coaching is important, but it, it's more of like a, like a long-term overtime thing where in football yeah. you get a good coach, implement a good system. I mean, what Sean McVay's done with the St. with the uh, St. Louis Los Angeles Rams, like they have really good players, but he's a humongous part of of their right. immediate success. So I, I that's a long winded way of agreeing with you. Yeah. So if if that's true, then you understand why coaches can be fired and hired so much more quickly than other sports because you're seeing some of their their direct handiwork play out on the field, and you know most people can kind of separate a player and a roster from the job the coach is doing. And I think in this case, you could certainly do that with Hugh Jackson. Yeah. The roster isn't one you're going to go out and win playoff games, but was it one that you should have won no games last year or, or, or struggled to, to win the games that they did this year? I, I think there's more talent than, than we saw play out through the record. So that, you know, that's a, a big reason why I think you see that in football more than other sports and then basketball to a little bit lesser degree, but still, you know, the coach has his fingerprints on on some of the individual play calls and, like you said, the system that gets run. But in baseball, you know, the manager, it's about how do you keep a clubhouse together for 162 games and beyond? How do you keep everybody mentally focused as they can be? Because over 162 games, you're not going to get 100% focus on every single game. But how do you maximize that? How do you keep people uh, from fighting? You know, putting guys in a room for – 
it's more than 162 days because you're talking about spring training too. I mean, to get together for six months and not have guys just wanting to kill each other by the end of it, um, I think you deserve some sort of gold medal for that. Um, I mean, hell, you and I can't sit together in the press box for more than five minutes without bickering about something. Uh, so I think there's something to that for a manager. And then I also kind of look at, you know, the Tito aspect of this, because I know there were some people that were scratching their heads on some of the decisions that got made in the playoffs. And you and I have discussed it. And I think we're there with some of that. But the thing is, like, when it comes down to it, when you're talking about, okay, let's look at what, what Francona maybe didn't do as well in the playoffs as we've seen him do better in the past, or he maybe he could have done a better job of. Some of the things that come to mind, like leaving Corey Kluber in for a few extra batters. Okay, yeah. Should you have gone to the bullpen? In hindsight, it's easy to make that decision. Yes. In the moment, maybe even could have made that decision. And I think in the moment, it would have made some sense to pull him sooner in game one against the Astros. But you're still talking about Corey Kluber, who even if he isn't 100% of Corey Kluber, is still one of the best pitchers in baseball. And if your decision is to leave Corey Kluber on the hill, that's not horrific. It's not fireable. It's just eh, maybe you should have went in a different direction. Same with game two. You know, you bring in Andrew Miller for Carlos Carrasco. That one stuck out. Okay, you know, that's fair. Maybe you should have left Carrasco in there a little bit longer. But you're still talking about Andrew Miller, who if you're going to win a championship, Andrew Miller has to be Andrew Miller, and you have to put the ball in his hands, and he has to produce. He didn't. He made you look stupid. You know, so sometimes as a manager in baseball, the most you can do is just try to put your best guys in a position to impact the game as much as possible. The Indians weren't going to win his playoff series. No matter what Tito did, if the offense hit under 100, Jose Ramirez couldn't find his any ability to hit a fastball or his ace pitcher, you know, wasn't right mechanically. And that's all true. So, you know, I can kind of separate the things that Tito probably could have done a better job of. And yeah, that's true. But also realize that, you know, players are ultimately going out there and deciding what's happening. And I think baseball more than any other sport, that's true. And I think that's why you see teams stick with managers because it's more about all that other stuff we were talking about, all the off the field, all the managing of personalities, as opposed to some of the things that take place on the field, some of that X's and O's, so to speaking, that really only results in fractions of wins and fractions of improvement, if that sometimes. It's funny to me because two years ago, Terry Francona was, people. a lot of people were saying, was the biggest reason the Indians nearly won the World Series. And it was his innovation and his, his deployment of, of the relievers and his, the, the strategy and the emphasis on just focus on that day and forget about the future. And that's how the Indians were able to take a patchwork roster to game seven of the world series. And now look, I get it. Like he, he's made mistakes. He's not a perfect product. It's interesting to me that it seems like fans are either on one side or the other. You either adore the guy and he's infallible or you think he needs to be fired and, and join <laughs> Hugh Jackson and Teron Liu in Hawaii the employment whatever. line. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, what, like, what are those guys doing now? Like, do you just, Oh, you got a lot of money coming your way. Go on so. vacation. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. Uh, probably if you're Hugh Jackson, probably not taking a dip in Lake Erie anytime soon, because it took a hell of a lot of effort to get him to do that. Yeah. And pull up your pants, man. Jeez, oh, we don't want to see all that. I mean, I, aren't there enough jokes about being the butt of the league? You don't need to add to that. Yeah. Line. I mean, really the Hugh Jackson, I mean, you can rank, the list of reasons he lost his job. First of all, number one, the, the, we should have known from the beginning when he referred to Terry Francona as Coach Francola, <laughs> like which Terry Francona still jokes about, yeah, or shakes his head at to this day. Like that should have been our first sign. Uh, and then the, I think that would be number one. Number two would be not it, it wasn't 
jumping in the lake. It was just literally walking until the water reached his ankles and somehow dragged down his pants. Uh, that would be reason number two. Reason number three, I mean, I guess could be the fact that the Browns were, what, three, 36 and one. Uh, so, yeah, somewhere in that order, I think I would. <laughs> yeah, definitely. No, but so so I think I think it's interesting. And, and there's a couple ways we could take this one. If you look back, you know, we always compare this era to the 90s era. The Indians did fire Mike Hargrove during the middle of that run. After the 99 season, when the Indians blew a 2-0 lead, they had just a juggernaut of an offense, scored a 1,000 runs, didn't have any pitching. Um, and then the, the next year, with Charlie Manuel at the helm, they, ended up, they didn't make the playoffs. And the year after that, they made the playoffs, lost in the first round. And then 2002 was the downward trend began. Charlie Manuel was axed in the middle of that year. Joel Skinner took over briefly before Eric Wedge came aboard. So I, it's sometimes you have to be careful what you wish for, because if, if you wanted, if, if you have this grand idea to, to fire Francona and you think he's the problem, well, you better have a, a, a good backup yeah. plan. Like, yeah. uh, I don't know who you're going to hire right away that that's going to be able to, to take over and, do more than Francona was able to do. The other thing, and you touched on this, you know, the the job qualifications have changed. And I'm kicking myself because it was on my list of questions I wanted to ask Tito at our end of season exit interview. Uh, and I, I didn't get a chance to get it in. But, you know, when he took over even six years ago, I think the job description was different. And now, you know, how much, how 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 much significance you place on being able to quote unquote manage the clubhouse? I think a lot of that depends on the players too, and I think there was a leadership void on the team this year. I think they missed a Napoli or a Giambi influence, and I don't think you necessarily always need that. I mean, they won 102 games last year, and they didn't have either of those guys, um, and and the guys who were in the clubhouse were a year younger, so. But, but I think, you know, there, there were some candidates like, like Encarnacion gave the speech after they clinched the division. Lindor is, is just naturally a leader. Kluber leads by example. Brantley leads by example. But there wasn't they, – they were missing some glue in that clubhouse. And, and the manager can be that glue. And Francona has always been praised for what he can do with the clubhouse and, and how he's a player's manager and whatnot. Um, but, but there's so much more with the job nowadays – that is relaying information from the front office, whether it's the analytics department, whether it's the GM, whether it's scouting, um, and just making sure everyone's on the same page, making sure what the, the baseball operations department sees statistically and analytically uh, with, with a pitcher or with a hitter, making sure that the pitching coach and the hitting coach know how to present that information to the players, stuff like that that maybe wasn't that big um, – didn't have that much influence on the job even when Francona took over six years ago and, and and so I think the question a lot of people have is because the Indians I mean they have a pretty advanced front office like they're they're usually thinking about things that maybe us commoners aren't and they're they, they've got given their their budget and their their resources they've got a pretty well established front office and and we talk all the time you mentioned it earlier how other teams poach people from their front office, poach people from their coaching staffs. Okay, well, so so what is 
what is the role of a manager then supposed to be in 2018, 2019? And, and can Terry Francona adequately fit that role? I think he can. I, I yeah. think so. Because I think we've seen evidence of that in the past, whether it was 2016 deploying the, the bullpen as he did or being willing. And this even goes back before he ever stuck Carlos Santana in a leadoff spot. He was thinking about on-base percentage and putting – Kevin Euclid in the on base or, you know, at the top of the lineup as, as a leadoff guy, even though at the time that was very unconventional to think of putting a guy that was kind of a base to base on base sort of guy at the top of the lineup. So, you know, I think, <clears throat> I think throughout his, his tenure, he's shown that he's willing to think outside the box. If he thinks it makes sense. I also think it's important that you have somebody that does think a little bit more, like a player, because, you know, we oftentimes get wrapped up in this, and I think it's easy to forget that this game isn't played on a spreadsheet and to just assume, well, the numbers say that this should happen. We're dealing with human beings, and I think it's important that you also have somebody that can at least make you think, not necessarily battle you or challenge you on every, everything that you can come up with from an analytical side of things, but just someone that gives you the other side that maybe you, you hadn't thought of before. And I think Tito's very good at that. You know, and I think we're, we're getting to a point where, you know, as you said, you're nearing the end of, of his contract in Cleveland. I think it's fair to, you know, wonder how much longer he's going to want to do this. He's been doing this for a long time. And at some point he might groom a replacement. So, you know, we might not be talking about this for, for much longer. Maybe the end of this current Indians team's window is the end of a Frank, a Francona's managerial career. I don't think that would be a surprise to you. No, I, I think we've said that. Like it, it honestly, it reminds me of the '90s era where I think, I think they're in like the the '99 2000 range right now, and I think there are major questions after 2020 when Carlos Carrasco and Trevor Bauer can be free agents and Lindor and Kluber enter their final years. That's when you have to start thinking about transition. Sure. Yeah, and, and but but. By that time, like a lot can change, and and I don't. I mean, it's it's still possible. It depends on the complexion of the division too. So, they can. We've said all along, like twenty seventeen and twenty eighteen were their last best chances to win, but that doesn't mean they don't still have a chance to win. But then, yeah, once I think the window, it looks like the window closes after twenty twenty. They would have to get creative and do some weird things to prop it back open but that's not impossible and and there therefore also i would think francona has two more years here and that's it but it's possible he sticks around until the thing is absolutely completely shut yeah and i i also think it's fair to look at the entirety of the roster now there's certain things that look like giant question marks that will continue to be giant question marks until they're answered in one way or another but also you can look at the rotation for what it is now. I mean, we've been talking about this rotation for years now and kind of being the backbone of this organization. But last year, you know, we saw Kluber wasn't always Kluber, but the entirety of the season still looks like an ace. Carlos Carrasco was much better in the second half and in the playoffs was dealing. So again, you still feel like he's the same pitcher that he's always kind of been here recently uh, and not making a ton of money, by the way, it's just a complete steal at $9.75 million. But then you talked about Bauer, and we saw Bauer, if not for the line drive to the, to the foot, you know, this guy would have been a Cy, legitimate Cy Young contender, possible winner. And I don't 
I don't think we think he's going to regress. I mean, maybe maybe it regresses a little, but not a lot based on what we saw and some of the the, the changes he's going to continue to make into next year with developing a changeup to go along with the slider and really just having a complete arsenal. And then you saw Mike Clevenger, who made some subtle adjustments in the second half, was throwing harder than he ever was before, looked like as strong as we had ever seen him, especially late in games. Then you saw what he did against the Astros, was might have been the Indians' best pitcher in the series, was fantastic in game three. Of course, the outcome, <laughs> easy to forget that. But you know he took a legitimate step forward. It's not a stretch to say they could have four near top-of-the-rotation starters and we've said that before, like, ah, they have four really dominant starting – but you could legitimately have four guys that could top a rotation for somebody if all those guys continue kind of doing what they were doing in the second half and continue to take that next step. And then, you know, Shane Bieber looks the part of a, a young, intriguing pitcher that I'm really, really uh, interested to see what his next step is. So, that, I mean, for as much as, you know, the lineup's going to have to undergo some changes and the bullpen certainly needs a lot of questions answered – I still look at that rotation and go, damn, man, that's as good just based on the skill set that you have there from that five. That's as good as you can get. Um, That's right up there with anybody else and sometimes better than some other people. Uh, So, you know, as much as it looks always doom and gloomy at this point in this offseason because you see all the free agents out there and and you see all the holes that they're going to inevitably have to fill and not a lot of wiggle room to do it, I still come back to the rotation and go, yeah, that's not a bad place to at least have a baseline to know that that's there. You know, to just to just be able to kind of I, I know it's difficult with pitching you can't always plan on it but just to kind of plan that those guys are all going to be pitching potentially at a stud type level and that really kind of helps fill in some of the other gaps along the way yeah like they're probably going to win the division again and like they're gonna have I don't know this year was just so weird yeah. like it we've said it over and over that it never clicked. It never felt right. Maybe that happens next year. I mean, I don't think anyone expected the Red Sox to win 108 games. That that team seemed good, but like, I don't know. It didn't really dawn on me how good they were until the playoffs. Like we saw them, like even in Boston, the Indians won games one and two and the Red Sox took the last two. And it was, it was a good series. Like they seemed like they matched up well. And even when, the Red Sox came to Cleveland. By that point, both teams had clinched, and it didn't really matter. And, like, things can just – like, teams can gel and exceed your expectations. Or, like this year, teams cannot gel, and they'll, they'll fall short. So, like, I would think this team can win the division again. And, and then it's just a matter of, well, okay, well, how do you fortify this roster so that you're not just a one-and-done team again? Yeah. Um, and this isn't just like a – you don't just take the off season and say, sign and trade for as many good players as you can. And if you get enough, maybe you can threaten the Astros and the Yankees and the Red Sox. Like things change. I mean, I, I think people look too much at postseason results. I feel like a broken record. We can just play all of our podcasts from last off season, but people just look at what happened in October and they extrapolate that out to the next season. And they say, okay, well the Red Sox and the Astros and, uh, the Yankees are, are automatically better than the Indians. So the Indians have to do a lot of adding this winter and hope that those other teams don't do any adding. And it's like, that that's not how it works. Like the Yankees, the, I think the Yankees are going to be the best team 
going into next season. I'm assuming they're going to sign like Machado or someone like that. Whoa, hold on. Well, there's reports out there that uh, we're not that interested, guys. <laughs> we're not that interested in these players. You just guys go do what you need to do. Yeah. How many times have we seen that? Oh, too many. <laughs> but but they'll they'll add a few really good players, and then they were already really good. And like yeah. they they'll probably be my pick next year. And it's like. That just because the Red Sox won it all this year doesn't mean that the Indians can't just play better next year and be better than them or, or play better in October. Like, so I think the, the Indians are, again, fortunate they play in this division and they're going to have to figure out a way to be more battle tested and all that fun stuff. But yeah, this isn't – people are acting like – and look, I know they have – blown it the last two years 2017 they absolutely choked against the Yankees that that can't be uh glossed over and it looks even more painful now because of how 2018 unfolded and 2018 just seems like like you're gonna look back on the stretch and be like man that was just a completely wasted year in the middle of what should have been a great run and and as it stands right now you look back at 2016 and you're like even though they were shorthanded that is going to be the one missed opportunity that that hurts the most. And so I I think, I don't know where I'm going with this, but like (laughs) the team is still good. And I don't think they've completely. You still have like three months to figure it out. So don't worry. Yeah. But they haven't completely exhausted this run yet. And, and like, yeah. Okay. Go ahead. Fire Terry Francona. Go (laughs) replace him with someone you probably had never heard of until you looked up hot managerial candidates. And then, good luck like I don't know what would change so yeah I feel the the thing that is I don't want to phrase this I guess the biggest tra- tragedy of, of, of some of these things the way that it plays out is I often feel like we don't actually get to talk about the real issues because we spend so much time talking about bullshit like firing Terry Francona is that legitimately going to happen no should they legitimately do it Probably not, but I feel like we have to spend so much time almost correcting back to zero that, you know, you spend so much of the battle doing that where I I feel like we, we could, if we, if we just had the time, we could just sit down and break down some of his managerial decisions and talk about the things. And we do this a little bit, but I think we could spend even more time about talking about it. Some of the places that he could be better, not saying he needs to be fired, but just trying to find the places where, where he could have been better because we know he's ultimately sitting down and asking himself those things. And if you think he's not, you're fooling yourself. Of course he's sitting down and, you know, looking at himself in the mirror and saying, what could I have done better? Um, And he probably does it more than anybody else and probably kills himself over it. I'm sure. But I feel like we, it would be just so much, it would be better if we didn't have to spend so much time sifting through the crap. Maybe it's our responsibility to ignore it and just talk about the real issues, you know, what, what could he have done, done better? What leading into next year, did you learn from this experience that even he as a uh, hall of fame future manager could be better? And I think that's fair. And I wish we could spend more time just talking about those things and, and not just with you and me, I just mean like on Twitter or in our discussions on the athletic. And I will say, you know, reading through other people's Twitter feeds and reading through, the comment sections elsewhere. I do feel like our, our readers have a pretty, pretty good grasp on reality and kind of being grounded. Even those that are the craziest 
can't wait for each game or are devastated when they lose. Those readers that we have, I think, are all pretty smart on this. And I, I really appreciate that, you know, when we sit down and we do those live chats every Friday or whatever end, day we end up doing them, then I feel like I'm not going to get ambushed by – I'm not going to spend time talking about questions that I shouldn't have to talk about. We can actually sit down and have a real discussion about things, and that's kind of what I enjoy. This – I mean, if you're going to fire Francona for anything, it should be the OTOP screw-up. Oh, God. I still can't wrap my brain around that one. How, how that made it through. And it's not just one layer of ineptitude in this moment. It's several layers. Several layers of bullshit had to, un- had to play out, had to unfold to get to Dan Otero facing Joey Votto. In a game that didn't ultimately matter one iota. But still, like, what the hell was that? Anyway, I mean, there's – look, I think it's perfectly fine to criticize Francona. I don't think he was at his best this season. I think it's easy to point to that when you don't have your desired postseason result. Um, I think – Like, how much better would Tito look if Andrew Miller didn't get hurt or if Cody Allen yeah, just did what Cody Allen does? I, I think it's tough because they're in such a unique position because of their division where the Red Sox and Yankees had to go balls to the wall from April on because they knew they were both going to be right there and they were going to win 100 games and they they had to avoid that wild card game. And the Indians, like, would it have made sense to just go all in and and give 110% every single day and not put up the gas? No, I don't think so. You can't sell me that that was the right for no reason other than some sort of narrative about being your best in October. I mean, we've seen them go in that way and still lose. I, I I just fail to see how pretending like you didn't have a double digit game lead in August and September would have made Corey Kluber pitch better or would have made Andrew Miller not get hurt and be bogged down by injuries the entire season. Like, I, I just fail to see the connection there. And even if there is some sort of connection, it's so minor in my mind that there's no way that it has this giant impact on the series. They sucked against a really good team, and you can't do that. In three games, you know, over a five-game stretch, you can't do that. And that's why they lost the, the series. It's not because they didn't play meaningful games in August and September. I, I just can't see that. Yeah. I mean, it was. it's interesting to think back, like, the athletic, our, our national writers did postseason predictions right before the playoffs started. Like Ken Rosenthal picked the Indians to win it all, I think. And like he wasn't the only <laughs> what one. Kind of, what kind of idiot would do that? Yeah, I think, I think all but one person, it was like seven of eight, picked the Indians to win the series against the Astros. So it's not like they were some crappy team all year who had no talent and were underperforming and got what they had coming. And like, they're, it, it just it didn't work. Like this season was just blah, and yeah. I, I don't know how much of that you attribute to the manager. How much you? I mean, it's I don't know. In, in the NBA, like the Cavs aren't going anywhere. So Ty Lue, like he was going to get fired at some point anyway. You you never in the NBA and NFL you never survive the rebuild and the come up. Like you you get cut. They cut bait at some point. And I just thought they would have some sort of plan on the interim before they would have done it. But, you know, yeah. well, that's, who am I? Literally, who is coaching the Cavs right now? <laughs> um, 
but and it's it's the same way in the NFL. Obviously, like that's why it was a shock that Hugh Jackson got to even start the year as a co- head coach this year. And in in MLB, like like I found it interesting when Ron Gardenhire took the uh, Tigers job because that's going to be a rebuild for like five or six years, and. I, rarely do you see a manager survive a rebuild and then get to stay for the, when the team is good. Like that, that just doesn't happen. Um, Cause you eventually need a new voice. And and so, when, yeah, like that's what makes Mike Sosha just ending his tenure with the angels. Yeah. So incredible. I mean, look at how long that dude coached that you forget, like they were a really good team at the start of it. And, right. You know, so, we're a perennial playoff contender. So it's just interesting to me where it's like, I'm completely fine if you want to criticize Francona, and there are certainly things you can pinpoint and, and you can question, and there are areas where he, he's got to get better. And, and, and maybe that's some of that is adapting and, and just being better at getting that information flow down pat from the front office and the baseball operations department and the coaching staff and the players and just, I don't know. But – like you said from the start, like that—that's not why Jose Ramirez was, you know, whatever he was in the playoffs, 0 for 11. That's not why Corey Kluber just couldn't give the Indians a good enough start in Game One. Like that's that's secondary. And and if you need a scapegoat because the Indians got swept, more power to you. But I, I don't think that's gonna just automatically improve things for next season. Yeah, but it makes it easier when you have some sort of straw man to throw stuff at you know it's analytics in the playoffs so that's why the Dodgers lost because they use analytics did you know that it was it's all in yeah. analytics it has nothing to do with the Red Sox also using analytics and employing uh some guy let's just, let me see here my notes oh Bill James have you heard of him so yeah I, I, it was analytics why the Dodgers lost and it's because the Red Sox don't care about launch angle that's why they won the World Series well let me ask you this if you had to do one would you rather fire Francona or trade Corey Kluber <laughs> why do I have to do one of these things? Because why is the this fan the scenario? Base spoken. <laughs> what, what, is there a gun to my head? In what scenario am I sitting in a chair and someone threatening me with this, this offer? It's, it's the, it's okay. the offseason, okay. man. It's a All right. place. All right. All right. What am I getting back for Corey Kluber? Uh, what am I getting back? I don't, what would you get back for Corey Kluber? That, I don't know. That's, that's my favorite part about this is so many fans have, have asked this question. It's like, oh, uh, shouldn't they just trade Corey Kluber for – a good outfielder they need outfield help and it's like yeah maybe in a perfect world that makes sense but show me a team that's in position just needs a Corey Kluber to get over that hump but then also has a surplus of all-star outfielders that they can give you back in return like I don't I don't think that, that uh, uh, hold on I'm getting a number here look it's from a Milwaukee area code you know anybody in Milwaukee apparently they would need someone like a Corey Kluber and have some outfielders that they could trade. All right. Remember, well, are remember. you trading Kluber for Christian Yelich? I don't think the Brewers are going to do that. Are you trading no. him for Domingo Santana? Because that's pretty ridiculous. Well, that's what that was last offseason. It was all like about Salazar, Domingo Santana. A little difference between Salazar and Kluber. Going back now, wouldn't you wish you could just tell yourself, past self, listen, self, go trade Danny Salazar? Well, I mean, he's really good. That, that, just go trade Danny Salazar, and you can thank me later. Is that kind of like Salazar saying, listen, self, you have an <laughs> injured shoulder. I don't care what the x-rays say. Why don't we do a random Indian of the day? All right, so I've got one here. This guy played for the Indians from 96 to 
Played 96 and 97. Bruce Aven. No. He actually came back in 03. Oh. 96, 97, came back in 03. Okay. What's the next clue? He was a pitcher in his three seasons with the Indians. He had a 415 ERA. Uh, Alvin Mormon. No. I wish Alvin Mormon would have come back. Uh, I can't think of who would have come back and as a pitcher. Uh, that 03 season was actually like, uh, technically his best. It was his most work. And his FIP sucked and his hit rate sucked, but he had the best ERA of any of the three years. Um, Mark Clark. No. <laughs> he, this guy is a left-hander. Okay. Let me give you a little transaction here. Left-hander. The Indians acquired him. Why can't I think? 96, 97. The Indians acquired him in 96 for Jason Grimsley and Pep Harris. What? What? <laughs> Who? Okay. I was going to say Tom Martin, but that's not it. No, but that's that's a good one. Left-hander. Oh, who is screaming at their car right now into their speaker as they know this? Oh, anything else Grimsley. I say, anything else I say is going to give it away. He was Selected by the Arizona Diamondbacks in the expansion draft. Oh, well, that now it's easy. It's Brian Anderson. Yes. Cleveland native, Geneva yes. High School, Wright State University, and now a broadcaster with the Tampa Bay Rays. Yeah. I wish he could be part of uh, the Indians broadcast because I think he does a phenomenal job with the Tampa Bay broadcast. Uh, but yeah, you're right. That last clue would have made it really easy. I don't know. I just wasn't thinking Brian Anderson was random enough. I mean, that guy almost almost finished out the World Series for you in '97. Yeah, his story is great, and I, you know, that MLB Network documentary from was it last year, the year before about yeah. the, the dynasty that never was. He's fantastic in that, and, and he tells the story of how you know he was so excited to get traded to his hometown team, and he he woke up thinking like. He's going to help win the World Series with his hometown team. And then obviously just gets crushed. And uh, There are no happy endings with 99.9% of Cleveland sports stories. (laughs) It's always that 0.1%. I remember a a story, maybe it was Hammy, Tom Hamilton that told us, or or maybe I just heard it through the grapevine. It was a start in spring training that they, he forgot his glove. And they had to go to a local Kmart, I'm assuming at this point, to buy him a glove so he could start the game in spring training. So they had to show up to a Kmart, buy a left-handed glove, and that's the glove he used for a spring training game. Brian Anderson using Kmart-style mitts. I feel like that happens more than we know. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I would imagine. Lindor supposedly forgot his jersey at a game this spring and had to wear number 69. I don't know if that oh, was. He's a funny guy. I don't know if that was uh, an accident or not, but <laughs> like I think I bet that stuff happens more than we know. Those players in in Arizona in February, especially in March, they're like zombies. They have no clue what's going on or where they're at. 
Yeah, that's probably true. Um, there's another story that I was told about Brian Anderson, but if you want it, you have to meet us up for beers one time because I, I need to actually clarify that it was Brian Anderson that this took place with uh, in a spring training setting. But again, without having that, I, you know, I need to check again with my sources to make sure that it actually took place. But if you ever see us someplace, you want to sit down for beers, I will tell you the Brian Anderson story that I was relayed once. That's quite a tease. Hey, Christmas Ale is out. Yeah, have you seen this? Have you heard about this? I've seen enough on your Instagram to know that that's the, tr- the case. I will be cracking open the first bottle from my newly acquired six-pack later today. How much has Linus already gotten into? <laughs> no, none, but I actually, while walking him today, uh, this is a first, his leash just snapped oh that's fun and it snapped as he was like starting to veer off the trail because he saw a giant puddle and he was either thirsty or just wanted to make a mess (laughs) so his leash is broken in two and he's standing in the middle of this puddle and realizes it and the moment he realizes it it's like (laughs) it's got to be like when a like when an offensive lineman just like looks down and sees that the football's out <laughs> and like freezes for a second and then pounces on it. And Linus just stared at me, noticed it, and then just started running in circles in the woods. And so I had to try to corral Fantastic. him and then hold him by his uh, harness and walk him back to the car, which was just brutal. So uh, that's about, that sums up how my off season's going. Well, I pray for you the next time that happens because, you know, I think you could do it once. I don't think with your foot being in the condition that it is that you could do it again. So I'll pray for you and the safety of your leash to use next time. Yeah, Thankfully, I'm out of the walking boot. Um, A quicker recovery than even Trevor Bauer had wished that he could have had. Wow. We'll leave it at that. You can subscribe to the podcast at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Anchor. And of course, your favorite over at Podbean and many other places, wherever you're, you're listening to podcasts, just search Selby's Godcast. You can find us there and make sure you subscribe, leave us a review, leave us a rating. Five star reviews are what we want. And if you want to leave us anything less, well, then go screw yourself. Any final words? Yeah. What would be the best Indians related Halloween costume? Huh. How about we just throw that out to our listeners? Because I don't think I could come up with that in like 30 seconds. A couple years ago, my wife was Trevor Bauer with his bloody finger. Yeah, okay. That would be a good one. Did she hold a drum as well? I think she, yeah, she had like a little makeshift miniature thing. Yeah, that's fair. Oh, yeah. Spur of the moment, I don't think I can come up with anything. Or like nothing, what would be the worst? I imagine like walking into a Halloween party and seeing some overexcited dude dressed as Nick Swisher and just wind up punching him in the face. Uh, that would be horrific. You could be uh, Trot Nixon and just smash everybody in the face with pies. That's pretty good. Or you could be Fausto Carmona and carry on multiple birthday cakes. Yes, and take a few seconds to answer when people call you by your name because that's not really (laughs) your name. All right, we're out of here. Have a good week. Have a good Halloween. Be safe, everybody. Hope you eat many candies and different little whatnots and make sure you keep up with your off-season 
regimen that is obviously going to derail all of us. Till we see you next time. This is Selby's Godcast. We're out. See you.